Hola, mi gente. My name is Jessica Yanez, and I want you to join me for some wine and chisme. The Wine and Chisme podcast was created to amplify voices across communities of color, all while drinking a glass of wine. From wine talk, interviews, and recaps of all things pop culture, join me every Wednesday for the chisme. Please make sure to check out the Wine and Chisme podcast and other amazing podcasts as part of the Latina Podcasters Network. Hola, hola, mi gente. I'm Jessica Yanez, and this is the Wine and Chisme podcast, a podcast created to amplify voices and share the stories of people from BIPOC communities doing remarkable things, all while sipping on a glass of wine. So welcome to your new Wednesday. The Wine and Chisme Wednesday. Today, mi gente, mm-hmm. I have Pedro Chavez. I'm so excited about this interview. Pedro is an immigration attorney and executive director of Fear of Return, and we will get into all of that. But before we get into the chisme, we have to get into the wine. I see you have your Topo Chico there. I see the Topo. I know. Look, I don't even need to see the freaking label. I know it's Topo Chico. Yeah, it's, it's definitely Topo Chico. Like, okay. uh, I actually, I saw your email and it said like, oh, we're going to drink wine. And I was planning on getting a bottle of Malbec, but it was one of those days I, I couldn't get out to Trader Joe's and buy something. And so I was like, would I have that kind of might work? And I was like, Topo Chico. Okay. So let me tell you one of my favorite mocktails mm-hmm. is Topo Chico with tajin, like a tajin rim and some mm-hmm. lime. And oh. everyone, it's so good. I've Not the lime. I mean, I can eat, I can drink the lime to, topo chico, but you, we always know like fresh lime hits different. Yeah. Yeah. It totally does. The little green yeah. ones. I mean, the good size, a ton yeah. of them. Yeah. So that's like my favorite mocktail. Like if I don't feel like drinking, um, but I'm out, that's mm-hmm. what I want. Give me a topo chico with tajin rim and a lime. And then everybody always thinks I'm drinking anyways. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, I am drinking a Pinot Noir. It's a 2018 Cremosi Vineyards Pinot Noir. So they're out of Oregon. Mm-hmm. And I've tasted this. I let it sit because she said like the longer you let it sit, the better it gets. Yeah. So, you have to let it breathe or something like with the Well, just within the bottle even. So mm-hmm. I'm excited because I'm going to see if it tastes different than it did last month when we had it. So yeah, I'm super excited. And then I still have like another glass. So I have this thing called a, a Coravin where mm-hmm. I don't have to open the whole bottle, which has been amazing. It has like this little needle that goes into the cork. Mm-hmm. It puts this gas in, like it's called argon gas that keeps the wine tasting fresh. So it doesn't spoil. So then when you take it out, the cork reseals itself since it's a natural material. And it's like, you never even open the bottle. That sounds really cool. It's I mean- so cool. My experience with like bottle openers is that they break after a week when you use them wrong. It's like uh, you try to get it in and then all of a sudden the, the thing is inside the cork and it won't get removed. And then you can't get the handle. Oh, you don't even have to deal with that. Literally just put it on, push it mm-hmm. and push the, the handle down with the needle. And then when you're done, pull it out. That's it. You don't even have to worry about all that. And for people who enjoy wine, but don't drink it all the time, like they're not going to go through a bottle in two days. It's perfect. It's so worth it. Well, salud with your topo chico and salud with my cramosi. Ooh, that was a good one I got today. Ooh, it's still ringing. <laughs> oh my gosh, this is so good. This I'm is jealous. I really wish I would have gotten the Malbec. No, you're, you're like, dang it. I should just told her I'll be a couple minutes late. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I wonder if they sell them at the Oxus. Um, <laughs> well, let me read your bio because it's very, very short, but. I have 10 of questions, obviously. Okay. Um, you're an immigration attorney from Texas, from Brownsville, like you said, but from Texas, and you live in Tijuana, Mexico, mm-hmm. and you are the founder of Fear of Return, a nonprofit that helps refugees find free attorneys. And then you're also randomly the record holder for the longest open Harry Potter room on Clubhouse. <laughs> Is that really there? I, I, I forgot that I put that in there. You uh, did, but, yeah. but that's always, that's a fun fact. That's so like, that's a fun fact, right? That's yeah. always good. Mm-hmm. We, we don't always need to be, 
Well, we're not always so formal on the podcast. Obviously, if we were formal, we wouldn't be drinking wine. Yeah. So. <laughs> topo chico. Or topo chico in your case. But I gave you a whole mocktail co- recipe now. Yes. So now you know. I got you. I got your back. Mm-hmm. So we actually met through Clubhouse. Yeah, yeah, we did. Do you remember what room it was? I don't remember the room. I know that, that we met. And I think you asked me to, to to be on the podcast and to, to fill out the form on your website. And I was like, oh, like my board at the time was like telling me that I need to do more interviews or something like that. And I was like, oh, this is, she seems cool. And I've never been on a podcast before. And that was like, that was like eight months ago. <laughs> but, I know it was so long, yeah. but you know what? A lot's mm-hmm. happened. I figured you were busy and everything like that. So, but now, but it always is timing, right? Sometimes it's just the timing has to be right for everything. And now it is. So yeah. I'm super excited. Well, you did share where you grew up. You grew up in Brownsville. So I feel like that makes you uniquely because Matamoros is right there. I feel like it's very similar, right? In certain ways to, I guess, San Diego, but also like Otay and, oh my gosh, my brain is like going farting all over the place right now. Why can I not think it's San Isidro? Whoa, that was weird. Was there a lot of cross-border experiences that were, you were happening? Were you just, did you solely stick to your Brownsville side growing up? So my dad actually works in Mexico. He's an accountant in Mexico. So every day, every single day, he would cross into Mexico to his office and work there and then come back to Brownsville to you know be with his family. And so crossing the border was a very normal thing. Sometimes I would cross just to see him at work. Sometimes we would have dinner in Mexico and then come back and sleep in in Brownsville. Um, so, you know, going back and forth, it was just such a normal thing for me that when I got here to San Diego and Tijuana, actually, it was never my intention to live in Tijuana when I first got here, but it became, you know, a viable possibility just because I had seen my dad do it back and forth. But the opposite end, you know, working in Mexico, I was working in San Diego. And so we were just doing the same thing opposite. And I was like, well, if he could do it, I could do it. I think that gives you such unique vision when you're a kid. Like, it just mm-hmm. feels like it's, like you said, it's just a normal thing to be able to to cross. When did you become aware? Were you aware of how difficult it was for some in being able to do that? Or is that something you were aware of at an early age? Or did, or did it just feel like everybody does this because you did it? The second, the, the, the latter. I, I wasn't aware of, the, of any immigrant issues growing up. I was a U.S. citizen. My my mother's a U.S. citizen. My dad was a permanent permanent resident. Going back and forth was just something we didn't have to, I, I had never, until I became an immigration attorney, I had never even thought of the difficulty people have to, you know, cross the border, find safety, or or, or move back and forth when their cases are pending in, in the U.S. So, it's, so for me, it was just an ordinary thing. I thought everybody could do it as a kid. I mean, obviously, because if you see it, you kind of just base your life perception on your own experiences, right? That's always yeah. kind of what I feel like. So mm-hmm. what did you, when you were growing up and seeing that, or just in general, what were your, what did, what was your dream like that you wanted to be a, when you grew up? Because I feel like when you're little, little, you don't think of being an attorney unless there's somebody in your family who's an attorney. Me growing up in San Diego, I didn't see a lot of, like my teachers were white. Like it, I didn't see a lot of people who reflected who we were growing up, but my, a lot of my peers were, and a lot of my friends were, you know, Latinos and everything, but I just didn't see that reflected in the professionals that we were around, the teachers that were taught our classes, things like that. Did you feel that same? But I also grew up like, and it doesn't sound like a lot, but I grew up about 45 minutes from the border versus like I'm 15 minutes from the border right now. So how were the, like the adults that were around you and that taught you and everything, were they reflective of the community and was so was that easier to be able to see yourself as something bigger versus, you know, if you can see it, you can be it type of thing? Yeah. So, I mean, I had a, a pretty similar experience in that. So Brownsville is like 98% Hispanic and it's everybody speaks Spanish and it's actually one of the most impoverished areas in the United States, that, that metropolitan area. I think at a certain point it was ranked pretty highly uh, as far as like poorest cities in in the country. And my family was no exception. My dad, like I said, he worked in Mexico. He was paid in pesos, not dollars. And my mother, she was a a nurse assistant, even though she was a nurse in Mexico. So we, we grew up relatively poor, very happy, very loved me and my brother. We had a very small house. But one thing that my parents did was they put every dollar they had into my education and to my brother's education. So 
instead of going to public schools, me and my brother both went to private schools. And it's, it's weird because you have a 98% Hispanic population in Brownsville, but that 2% of white people, they went to that school. So I was one of like very few, I guess, brown kids in, in an all white private school. And so while I was there, I mean, it, it was kind of weird because when I was one of the poorest kids there, and at the same time, it's like I, I went to their houses. I had friends. I mean, it was, it was all cool. Kids don't judge on economics too much. Um, and so I but I did see the, the stark differences. Their houses were much bigger than mine. Their families were lawyers, uh, filled with lawyers and stuff like that. But honestly, that, that, that wasn't my motivation. It's like I didn't want to be a lawyer because I saw rich friends and I wanted money. At first, I wanted to be a lawyer because that's what my mom told me to be. <laughs> she just kept telling me, you're good at arguing. You're going to be a lawyer. And I was like, really? It's like, yes, that's what you're going to do. And I just kind of listened to her and then rebelled in college and became a, a biologist <laughs> and an immunohistochemist. <laughs> but eventually, she was kind of right. And I ended up going to law school in the long, in the long run. So when you were in high school, where you're like, okay, screw this, I'm going to go into, first of all, I feel like those are so on opposite sides, right? You have something that is very, I guess, technically, maybe they're not, maybe they're very similar in regards to they're both very logical, but one is reason and one is, no, this is what it is. There's no reasoning when it comes to science, right? It is or it isn't. There is a, you prove it or disprove it type of thing. And I guess tech kind of in law, there's the, we, you have to prove beyond it, but there's also reason. How do you get from one to the other? They just sound so different. The two disciplines couldn't be more different. You're right. So yeah, everything's an exact right answer in the sciences. You know what the, the this math, the biology, the chemistry, there's a right answer and there's a wrong answer. In law school or in the law, it's, it's, there's a hundred right answers it's about arguing it the best. That's what you want to do and convince your specific judge, convince your professor when you're in law school. And there's, there's so many right answers. They're two completely different things. I'm actually a pretty r- a rare person. Actually, if you go to any kind of law school, most of them, I think everybody comes from like a history background and English background. There's very few scientists who, who are in law school. But I, I like to think I, I bring like a, a different perspective to everything because I can think of things that they can't think of. You went from one opposite to the other. Where did you end up going to college? I went to uh, UC Brownsville, which is just kind of like a, a, one of the sister universities of the UT system. Mm-hmm. And that's where I, I spent my four years getting my biology degree. So you actually graduated with a degree in biology? Yeah, a minor in chemistry. Oh, my a, God. You're yeah. right. You were, You definitely came from like the complete opposite end. Mm-hmm. So at what point did you decide you know what? I think I'm going to go into, let me just throw all this biology and chemistry away and let me go into law. <laughs> so I had worked as an immunohistochemist doing like uh, biomedical research for a while. I was just, uh, studying epilepsy and it was the most boring job I had ever had. <laughs> the thing is, like you said, there's a right and a wrong answer, but when you're doing research, even the wrong answers can be right. And so we're trying to find novel treatments for epilepsy using cannabinoid receptors. And it seemed like every experiment I was doing, it was wrong and it was frustrating because like, it's like, is this working? Is this not working? And I didn't like, I didn't like the failure aspect of it, even though that's part of the process. And at the same time, it was, it was really boring because some of these experiments could last hours and hours at a time. And you're kind of just stuck in a lab waiting for the centrifuge to finish spinning. So I was really, really bored with it. And at the same time, I was like, well, do I get an advanced degree and like become a, a, a PhD or something? And at the whole time, I was like, this, I'm just not enjoying this. I'm not enjoying science. I don't like science. It's kind of boring. I just didn't like it. I kept thinking, you know, my mom wanted me to be a lawyer. And until I got to college, that's really what I was thinking I was going to do. I, was, I did mock trial in high school. And I was good at it in high school. Like I was, I took our team, I think, further than it had ever gone in, in my high school. I just kept thinking I was really good at it. I liked the time that I was like pre-law in college before I switched majors. And I was like, maybe I should do this. And, you know, it took me a while. I I pretended to be a writer in Mexico City for a little while. And there was other things and I was a day trader. And so I was like, what the heck? Well, why not? And so I, I decided I would take it one step at a time, started studying for the LSAT. And I figured, okay, if I don't like studying for the LSAT, then, you know, I'll give up. Or if I get too low of a score on the LSAT, I'll give up. And then I was like, okay, 
if I do one year of law school, I don't like that one year of law school, I'll give it up after that first year. But I was really good at that first year. And like I got made law review and I had like the highest scores in, in like one of my classes. And I was just really enjoying it because I was really good at it. And then I like I transferred from one law school to an even better one. And and so I just kept succeeding here and I kept enjoying the whole process. Everyone I was meeting, uh, the, like the law and, and, and all the cases I was studying. And I just kept saying, you know, one more year, one more year. And now here I am. I have so many questions <laughs> from yeah. that. Okay. Because I think that's, first of all, when it comes to things like research, particularly in what you were doing, I don't imagine you see many Latinos in that arena. No. So the first of my many questions based on your answer <laughs> okay. is like, how did it go? Because obviously you're stepping into this thing and you're enjoying it or you're not, you're thinking it's boring. You're good at it, but you're bored out of your mind. Does it cross your mind at any point that I'm one of the few people, one of the few Latinos that are maybe in this area and now I'm leaving it? Does something like that ever cross your mind or does it, or you're just like, I don't see anybody reflected like me and I'm bored out of my mind and it's time to move on. Like, does that even come into play it? I mean, obviously I have no idea because science was not my forte. Lord Jesus, I passed chemistry, I think barely with by the skin of my teeth because mm -hmm. we just didn't match. But how do you go in when you go into that type of structure? I'm sure you're aware of that, but is that something that comes into mind when you decide to leave? Not really. And the reason was that, you know, I had two different bosses when I was doing the first one. Uh, her name is Misako Isokawa. And she was a, a Japanese immigrant. So it wasn't, you know, she was the only Japanese person in, in South Texas, as far as I knew. So she was really the minority here where like 98% we were Hispanic. And although there was, I was one of very few, I think, looking back on it now, but it wasn't something that I was thinking. My second PI was... Um, was Emilio Garrido, and he was uh, he was a Cuban. Uh, he was a Cuban national. He had studied in, I want to say, Argentina, but he he had a PhD and an MD. And again, he was Hispanic like me, so it was uh, it, it wasn't something that I thought of. The first time I actually thought, you know, I'm a minority, and there aren't that many people like me, was when I got to law school. That was my uh, second question. So go on. Yeah. <laughs> so when I got to law school, all of a sudden, like it was like I was back in elementary and middle school in that private school I mentioned where I was just one of a bunch of you know white kids and privileged white people. No, no offense to my other one. Yeah. But, <laughs> but well, if uh, they're listening to this, it's because they want to hear these stories and they think okay. it's important to learn. So mm -hmm. they're not, I don't think they would be offended that you said white people. Okay. So there I was in law school and there was very few of us, again, Hispanic people. Uh, there was a, a ton of, of white people who came from very privileged backgrounds, a lot of them from lawyer families, multi-generational lawyer families. And that's when I like started thinking, why am I all alone again? And, you know, you research it and it's like 4% of all lawyers are Hispanic. That was one of, I mean, it wasn't the only thing, but it was one something I thought of it before I ever decided if I was going to quit law school. It's like, if I quit, there won't be that many of us. And when I first got to immigration law, something else surprised me is that there was very few Hispanic immigration lawyers. There's very few Spanish-speaking immigration lawyers. A lot of them use translators. And that was more shocking than anything. And that's because we're not kind of funneled into it. I mean, I wasn't going to be an immigration lawyer. I was going to be an intellectual property lawyer, actually. But when I got here, it was like, I was very unique in a way. And people were just really happy to see me. Like they were very happy to see someone that looked like them, somebody that can speak Spanish, someone who has parents who are, are Mexican. And so they were just so happy to see me. I was, I was good at it. And so it was like, there's very few, there's only 4% of like all lawyers in the United States are Hispanic. And out of that 4%, even a smaller percentage actually speak Spanish. And out of that percentage, even a smaller percentage go into immigration law. So my whole life, I've been a minority, but right. like I felt it when I got to law school, when I got to immigration law, to this moment, there's very few of us. That is so surprising because you would think, and I can see people having different interests. And obviously you want to, we want to be represented across the board in all types of law. When you were telling me this story, I was thinking of my friend, um, Sandra, who is a doctor and she used to be an OBGYN and she's actually going more into public health now. And she would tell me the same things. Like she would be the only Spanish speaking one. She would be the only Latina in regards to, especially when it came to women's health. 
and how many times people would be shocked and be so excited that mm-hmm. she could speak Spanish and that they, that she could talk to them and she could relate to them because she was Latina. When she told me this, I was like, oh my gosh, that's because English is my first language. My parents were very like, even my dad growing up in Brownsville, my mom, you know, growing up in different parts of Southern California, the, in their generation of them growing up, you know, speaking Spanish was very, very looked down upon and you would get in trouble and you could get hit and you could get punished for speaking Spanish. Mm-hmm. So with me and my sisters, they made a very cognizant effort to make sure English was our first language and thinking, oh, we'll speak to them more in Spanish. So I've never had this type of challenge, but I've heard of it. And I know that my friend's parents have, and I know that I have friends that have. So it's always very interesting for me to hear it. And I think that it's something that people need to hear in regards to how little representation there is within Latinos in law. And then within that, there's so many different specialties. So of course that is going to get slivered down even more and more and more. Mm-hmm. When you saw that, was that what made you decide to go into immigration? Was that kind of like, I'm needed here? Or were you like, I still don't want to do this? What made you decide that immigration was what you're going to do? If you're growing up, I think, uh, to be honest, I did not want to be an immigration attorney. Let me make that clear. I went to like a top 10 school for intellectual property law. And I had spent two years in law school, studied IP licensing, copyright, trademarks, and that's where I was going to go. And then the day after I passed the Texas bar, I was like in shock. I was like, okay, now my life really begins. Now I have to go dress in a suit every day and go make partner. And the next 20 years was like, you have to be disciplined and you have to be like very professional. And I didn't want to do that. And even though I was very interested in law, I liked the intellectual prospect of it. I, li- I liked IP law. I like learning about video games and and about um, uh, books and movies because all that's IP. Oh, I but bet I you the whole Taylor Swift thing is very much talked about in law school now in regards uh, to that. I may have missed it. <laughs> what? Yeah, um, sorry. So the whole, I'll give like the super, okay. super brief thing mm-hmm. is her, she wrote her music. So she maintained like copyright of what she wrote, but the music itself like went, it was, she didn't own the masters. Mm-hmm. So she had to wait a certain amount. Like she wanted the opportunity to purchase her masters. They Mm -hmm. were sold to somebody else who she had big disputes with. So then she decided she was going to wait out however long she needed to wait out and re-record because she still owned the music rights. So now she's re-recording some of her music Mm -hmm. because even though she doesn't own the masters, now they're quote unquote Taylor's version. So she's changing them just enough that she can still record it because she still owns the rights to the music itself, just not the masters. Oh, I see. So she's, I mean, I guess she's creating a derivative work that's so different from the actual, you know, starting point that you can say it's a different work. Yeah. I mean, if you can do that, I mean, it's, it's all coming back. I mean, she licensed that. She must've licensed out the IP and she can't buy it back. She might not have enough money for it, but she has like the underlying IP that created that derivative work. And then she's just going to, create a, a branch out of that one. Yeah. So that's what yeah. I'm saying. I'm sure that's yeah. something that's discussed like now within that type yeah. of law school and everything. It probably was. I, I don't know when it happened. I might've missed it. It's happening now even because she oh, just then, is re-releasing this stuff. So yeah. No, I've been out of law school for two years. So it's, <laughs> yeah. The, and I haven't been in IP for that even longer, like three yeah. years at least. So I guess you want to know why I became an immigration Yeah, so how did that go? Because you were, you. I mean, it sounds like you were fighting it. You're like, "Mm, yeah, no, I don't want to go into immigration. Well, I was fighting becoming an IP lawyer, actually. Because like I said, I I didn't want to wear a suit and everything. And at the same time, this was November 2018, I saw these caravans headed to San Diego. And I got the crazy idea of of like, you know, I'm going to do one last thing for myself before I settle down and, you know, try to make partner in an IP law firm. And I packed up all my stuff, put it in my car, and I decided just to drive to San Diego and tried immigration law for a try. Like in law school, I had done one semester immigration clinic. It, it wasn't something I really liked very much because they don't really trust the students to do too much. Uh, we just kind of did some interviews and stuff like that. But I knew I could be okay at it. I, I knew that, you know, if I had the right guidance, I could pull it off. And so I packed everything up. I had my law license now, and I just went to San Diego and the second day I was in San Diego, my car broke down. 
also, I was looking for housing and my, the Craigslist ad all said, oh, there's a $500 apartment in Pacific Beach. Of and course. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> right? It's like, I was complete shocked with the prices because I had this list of Craigslist ads and I was like, oh, I can afford this. I was thinking Texas prices. And like, they, just, they were all scams. And so there I was, I had taken my car to Pep Boys and they quoted me $4,000 to fix it, which was more than the car was worth. And I was living in a motel, which was getting more expensive every day. And so, and I was at a dealership, I was going to sell my car and I was going to give up and I was going to drive home. I was like, I can't afford to live in San Diego. My car is breaking down. There goes my entire life savings or whatever it did. And it's just not worth it. I'll go back to Texas. And then on that list of Craigslist ads, there was a place in Tijuana at the very bottom that I kind of put it as a Hail Mary. And I called that number and the guy there was like, don't sell your car. Because I was at the dealership and I called him. Don't sell your car. I'm going to pick you up. You're going to put everything you have from your car into my car. And I'm going to drive you slowly to my place, my Airbnb. And you're going to live with me for a month for free. And I was like, this guy's going to kill me. And <laughs> It sounds like the beginning of a movie, a thriller movie where you get yeah, so I was, Yeah. So I was like, thank you, sir. No, thank you. I kind of hung up on him. And I was like, I didn't want to do it. But by then I, I told him what dealership it was in and he showed up. And he arrived and he knew exactly what was wrong with my car. He had dealership experience, apparently. And he's like, well, what is it going to take for you to trust me? And I was like, all right, sir, if you're going to do this, I'm going to need a picture of your license plate, a picture of your passport, and a picture of you in front of your car. And he gives me all of those things. And I send them to my brother. And I'm like, if I die, this is the guy that did it. <laughs> I've done that on dates. <laughs> <laughs> and he's going to go on a first date. I'm like, here, wait, I need your picture. <laughs> yeah, it was one heck of a first date. Yeah. <laughs> With my with my future landlord, it mm -hmm. turned out to be, and sure enough, like after that, I trusted him, and we slowly got my car to TJ uh, to Tijuana, and I lived with him, and he got my car fixed for three hundred bucks instead of four thousand, and little by little, like I, I I ended up becoming an immigration attorney at Catholic Church of San Diego, where I was their staff attorney. Then the rest is kind of well, it's not history, but it's just kind of how I ended history up in the making. A, yeah, it's <laughs> how I became an immigration attorney. Wow, that's so crazy. That's like taking the road less traveled, literally. <laughs> yeah, that I gave you the summary. The, the long true story is much weirder. Uh, you can it, tell me that offline. You can tell me the, yeah. the rest mm -hmm. of the stuff. Mm -hmm. That is so crazy. So being licensed in Texas, how were you able to do anything in California? Is there like some, a bridge? Do you have a certain amount of time before you, like, how does that work? No, uh, since immigration law is federal law, you can practice it in any state. So I can't do traffic tickets in California, but I can keep someone in the country. Basically it's, um, it, it's all federal law. I can Got practice it. It anywhere. So we were talking like prior to this conversation, we were talking an email in regards to things that have changed during like what changed in regards to immigration over this is actually beautiful because the podcast that came out right before yours we were talking about Mexican history and how the erasure of Mexican history and we were also talking about the complicated history between Mexico and the United States in regards to people crossing and being welcome here when there's work when there's work that's needed and then like you need to go back you're where you came from type of thing right so this is actually like such a perfect interview to follow that interview how have things changed over the last several years particularly from the obama administration to the orange i don't call him his name under the orange man's administration and now during the current administration like what things have you kind of seen? What things have been, and what do you think, or has there been much change in regards to the current administration from, from what's happened previously? When I saw that question in the email, I was like, it's a great topic, but it's like the biggest topic you could have picked. Um, <laughs> you could just, so, uh, I mean, I'm sure there's mm -hmm. so much, I mean, I know there's so much to it, but just mm -hmm. for layman's terms in regards to people trying to kind of wrap their head around it, because I feel like I have a general kind of general understanding. And I feel like there's a lot of people that don't even have a general understanding of, of what's happening with the immigration system in the U.S. Okay. So starting with uh, the Obama administration, okay, well, even starting further back, 
immigration law is is very unique because it's not it's not state law it's federal law and it's not just federal law it's regulatory law that is very subject to executive orders basically it's whatever the president wants it to be it can be as long as the interpretation that the president comes up with is reasonable it's actually a legal standard what the president says immigration law is has to be reasonable according to what's on the statute books because of that Immigration law is subject to change with every administration very, very frequently. And it's very easy for a president to make these changes because they don't need Congress's approval. They don't need any kind of, you know, they don't really need anything. All they have to do is write it out and make it executive order. So it's very tempting for politicians to use immigration law to get easy wins. They can just say what the immigration law is and they get a win that satisfies their base. Now, for a very, very long period of time, we dealt with kind of the same immigration issues over and over again. Basically, it was men crossing from South America into, into the United States. Not South America, Mexico it was actually North America, but crossing from the South into the United States looking for work. It was usually men, 20s, 30s. They would work, they would send their money back, and that was the system. For a very long period of time, regulations were kind of designed for men. And that changed during the Obama administration, because in 2014, for the first time in a very long time, we started seeing a huge influx, not of men, but of women and children and families. And they weren't coming from Mexico anymore. Mexico didn't make up the the large group. They came from Central and South America, Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala. And so now we have all of these families and all of these children crossing, and our system was not designed to handle that. And so what the Obama administration started to do was, well, at first they had to deal with the influx because, I mean, in 20, I think it was 2014, it was like 68,000 unaccompanied children that crossed. So they had to deal with the influx. And so now that's when you started seeing the Walmarts turn into, into detention centers. I don't know if you've seen them, but like they started converting big buildings. That's where you actually started seeing the cages. And again, it's like visually, it's, it's, it's horrifying to see a child in a cage. Um, under the fencing, the thinking yes. was, well, you could, it was for ventilation purposes. You could see the, the tamed individual and it allowed them to separate these children from different age groups, like teenagers here, toddlers over here, and et cetera, women, over, you know. So, but visually it just made them look like cattle, which was terrible. And it, and it kind of highlighted the issue in any case. So the Obama administration had to deal with this huge influx of children and, and women and, and they, they decided to do it just by converting things, asking for more funding and that kind of thing. And then the Trump administration came around and the Trump administration came around and they decided to do something different with the influx of women and children and families. They decided to make it as hard as possible and as scary as possible and as you know, frightening as possible for them to come, basically to deter their migration just by scaring bejesus out of them so they don't come at all. So we don't have to, we don't have to create new, new, new compounds. We don't have to create better housing or anything like that. We just have to scare them so they don't come. That's where you get family separation. That's where you get the migrant protection protocols that kept migrants in Mexico instead of crossing. That's where you get public charge rules that don't allow you to get benefits when you're in the United States. It was all designed to stop this influx of children and families, which again, we had never seen until about 2014. And if you want to keep going, then there's the Biden administration, and they basically became back into the Obama administration of separation. But I don't know if you have any follow-up questions, but it's it's a very big topic, and there's yeah. a lot of things that go into it. Oh, yeah, that's what I was saying, like, just in a very general type of sense, because I know that there's so much, and there this could probably be, like, literally a several-parter if we were to go into all of the things. It would be, we could probably do an entire, like, year worth of podcasts on just all of these things. I wouldn't mind. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll definitely have to do a follow-up, because I'm sure there will be questions and, and everything and, and more things that we want to know. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it hasn't even been a year into this, into the Biden administration, so... Things will, I'm sure, will continue to change and ebb and flow. And when another president comes in, I'm sure it'll change even more. Talk about what was going on, because obviously, like you said, immigration is, I feel like that's just something that politicians glob onto Mm -hmm. just to get their names in the papers, just to make an easy quote unquote win just by making a statement, but without really ever doing anything, which is very frustrating. I have friends who are dreamers. In fact, one of my friends did come on here, Luis, in October of 2020. He came on and he's a dreamer, was talking about, you know, his frustration and how he grew up. And, you know, this is all he's ever known is is growing up in California. And I think there's a lot of 
Do you see any progress in regards to dreamers being able to finally get some sort of citizenship status? I mean, progress in that regard, no. I mean, right now they have a form of deferred action, which means it won't be sent back. In order to make real progress, you need to actually change the law rather than an executive order. And to do that, you need congressional majority. And it's just very hard to have right now. So I, I really don't, not, not until we have like a majority in Congress willing to pass that type of legislation. And that's one of the hardest things to do. Something that big, something a uh, pathway to citizen, something that big. The only other avenue would be if the Supreme Court actually said that they had some kind of a right to some kind of permanent status. But the litigation on that would be very complicated and very, it would be very hard to bring it to court. Because they're not a, a DACA recipient isn't entitled to to citizenship at this time, and it's unfair, it's unfortunate, but the only avenue is through Congress for that thing. That is so crazy. I want to mm-hmm. talk about what you're doing with Fear of Return. You actually started this nonprofit during the pandemic, <laughs> and I obviously there was a lot of things that happened in regards to immigration and migrants and shelters and everything. Can you talk about why you decided to start Return of Fear? Like, what what is exactly Return of Fear of Return, and why did you decide to start it? Well, I was going to leave Catholic Charities because I was their staff attorney. I was actually one of their only. I was their only uh, full time Spanish speaking staff attorney. Like I said, it was pretty rare. And at the time, the director of immigrant services actually had me here in Tijuana. It was part of my job to go into the migrant shelters and do legal evaluations for them and then bring them back to the San Diego side and see if we can represent them in in immigration court. Like I said, the Trump administration kept them all in, in Tijuana while they were waiting for their cases. There weren't very many attorneys doing that. It was just me and a couple others because over here in Mexico, we're not attorneys. Not too many of us speak Spanish. I did. I blend pretty well. So when I left Catholic Charities, I, to, I wanted to take the California bar. I asked the director who's going to replace me in the migrant shelters. And they told me that they would find somebody, but they didn't. And I kind of knew they didn't. Like I said, that was pretty rare. And so I, I, I was living in Tijuana at the time, and I was like, no one's going to do this. So I started Fear of Return kind of as my weekend project. I was studying for the California bar exam. And I said, okay, look, this is something I'm going to do on weekends. I'm going to go into the shelters because I knew everyone at the shelters. And I'm going to keep doing legal evaluations. And I'm just going to provide those evaluations to the attorneys in San Diego and hope that they take the cases. And I can do this on Saturdays and stuff like that. And that was just my plan. And that's all it was going to be. But then the pandemic hit. And all of a sudden, the shelters went on complete lockdown. And everybody there was terrified of me. And not, they were terrified of me because they were like, is he going to bring the virus in? Or are we going to give him the virus? And so I, I spoke with the shelter directors, like from distances and stuff like that. Before there were you're masks. Bull horns. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they were like, brother, we want to support you with what you're going to do. But I mean, you can't you can't really do this right now because we're trying to just keep everybody alive. And so that's when I decided, well, okay, maybe I just give up on this. You know, I give up on the project and get back to studying for the California bar exam. But then the California bar exam started moving. They started canceling it because of COVID also. So then I was like, well, do I abandon the project or do I double down and commit to it? And I decided to commit to it. So at that point, I was like, okay, this can't be a summer project. This has to be a, a, a nonprofit. And this has to be a 501c3. It needs California registration. I need a board of directors. I need everything that goes into a nonprofit. And that's what I did. I gathered a board of directors together from first, like people that were qualified that had immigrant related experiences. And then like I found a nonprofit consultant, which was honestly the smartest thing I ever did to put her on the board. And then uh, we did California registration. We requested 501 status from the IRS. We wrote bylaws. We wrote uh, volunteer manuals. We And we did our launch in, in December of 2020. It all just happened because I saw this need for somebody to be out here. And COVID gave us time to work on it. Guy, I don't even, I, I wish, I don't even have words. Because I think when you're talking about this, one thing that I remember seeing when all of this stuff was happening. Because first of all, like you said, it's few and far between. And a lot of these migrants don't have legal representation because they're not necessarily quote unquote entitled, right? Is that correct? Like if I were to get arrested and I don't have money for an attorney because I, an attorney will be provided for me, right? Through the district, you know, through public defender or whatever. 
but that's not necessarily these migrants don't get that they don't get automatically get any sort of legal representation and i remember seeing like a little i think it was a little girl or a little boy like five years old with a headset on and they're asking do you understand of course a five-year-old's not going to understand most adults aren't going to understand what's going on oh my gosh I, i i i'm just kind of almost stumped i'm tripping over all of the thoughts that are going in my head how, like, there's so many people that need, like, legal representation. How do you filter through all of that? And how overwhelmed is the system? Well, first off, like you said, they, they don't get legal representation. And the number of people that come in, they desperately need it. Because having an attorney increases your odds of, of claiming asylum by about five times. And the what you mentioned with the kid, um, the, the child... In immigration court, it, it probably wasn't him because you can't record in immigration court. So you probably saw one of the, the reenactments. I've seen them on nonprofits make them, and they're very accurate because I've been there. But as for the influx, the nonprofit sector has been handling the influx for forever. And when I was a, an attorney for an, another nonprofit, I mean, the thing I did most often was write denial of legal services letters. Like I would just write them. I had, I, well, I didn't have to write them. I had a standard kind of thing. I just signed them and send them out, sign them and send them out. And that's because there was just so much demand. There were so many cases to go through and I could cherry pick. Every nonprofit attorney can cherry pick. And we, we used to say that we take the cases, not that are winnable, but we take the cases that would win if there was an, if all it needs is like a little push by an attorney. And so there were so many denials and there were more denials during the Trump administration because everybody was in, in, in Tijuana and nobody, no attorney would want to cross to do case development, to gather evidence. And because and, there's a lot of case development that has to happen. And while they're in Mexico, we can't just go crossing over there and over here and, and developing their cases. So the demand is huge and they all need it because, I mean, it's life and death for them. And it's why I started Fear of Return, because I just wanted to help with the demand. As for a solution, I mean, my nonprofit is emailed Senator uh, Gillibrand. She tried to pass a, a law that would allow uh, universal representation. Basically, like the immigrants would be entitled to an attorney. As far as I know, it didn't get any traction. But sure of that, it's just, I mean, fund a nonprofit. Fund, fund them that, that do legal services. Fund for your return. I mean, we're all 501s. You don't have to do mine. You can do any other. Right. And, and hope that that makes the slightest dent. Well, this is why it's important that we know what our representatives are doing, right? And what they're trying to pass so we can call and say these these things need to happen or put the money where where it can help the most. How many lawyers do you have helping you? Is it just is it just you? <laughs> okay, so if you return, we're on a shoestring budget. So yeah, it is just me. No, we have about like, uh, I think, I want to say over like 30 volunteers at this point. But Fear of Return can't afford to offer legal representation. We don't have the money to pay for the insurance for it. What we do is we connect them with attorneys. So we try to find them first a pro bono attorney or a private attorney willing to do a pro bono case, or we try to fundraise so that they can pay for a private attorney. That's like the last step because we can't just find them anywhere. Um, so we don't, we don't staff attorneys because their salaries are too high. And what we do is we just try to connect them with those attorneys that have some time to take a case. Wow. That's so sad. It's so sad because there's so many mm-hmm. people that really need it. Am I correct from what I understand? And please keep me honest. I'm all about like general information that I hear and trying to get the correct information, right? I wanting to know what's really true. From what I understand, during the previous administration, a lot of judges had retired that did a lot of these cases and they were purposely not filled. And that's really, have they been filled? Do you know if they've been filled? And that's what's kind of really helped like increase the caseload and backlog a lot of these things is because a lot of these judges that are no longer there have never been replaced. I don't know if the if they've been filled, but I have seen I've seen a lot of judges that retired during the Trump administration. I mean, during the Trump administration, they they established about a 700 case co- quota they had to work through throughout the year. 700 cases that every immigration judge had to go through, and it was I want to say I, I almost feel I feel sorry for the immigration judges because to get through that many cases in a year it takes it's terrible. And there was this this thing to deny. I mean, it was it was a whole culture kind of. And so a lot of judges, they said, you know, I'm, I'm getting old. I can't handle a 700 case quota. 
I don't like the fact that I have to kind of, de- you know, deport, deport, deport. And the Trump administration was changing the laws every five minutes. And so they just decided to leave. And rather than, than fill the positions, they just kind of, no, we don't need more immigration judges. Let's put this money towards deterrence, deterring migrants from coming in. And that's what they really focused on. They didn't focus on more immigration judges. As far as what the backlog is, I mean, there's cases for asylum that have lasted like years, five years, longer. And it's a nightmare for these people to live in that kind of uncertainty for that large period of time. What would help is, yeah, more immigration judges, but you'd have to you have to hire a ton more, not just replace the ones that left, but there's just a, such a huge backlog right now. Oh, my God. Like I said, my head is kind of spinning because I feel like you hear a lot of this information in parts and pieces. So to hear it all at once is like, whoa, right? Like, it's kind of like, wow, there's so much. What are some common misconceptions when it comes to immigration, when it comes to the migrants? Like, and actually, let me have, I have another question for you. Everything that we saw, what was your perception of what we saw in Texas with the border patrol agents on horses, with the Haitian migrant immigrants here, like, what was your perception of that? Because I feel like there's a lot of different perceptions, and so I just want to kind of get an immigration attorney's perception on what was happening at that time, and then what beyond that, what are some common misconceptions that the public has when it comes to immigration and what's happening at the border? So when I saw the Haitian migrants entering. Um, entry in South Texas. You're right. I mean, I I guess I saw it from a more procedural standpoint. I saw it as like, okay, how are they going to process them? Are they going to give each Haitian enough time to prove their cases prior to deportation? Are they going to take their time with this? Because I was seeing uh, this rush to to action from the Biden administration. Texas started to to help and, and kind of like this inhumanity happening where it should have been, you know, we should have set up tents, we should have set up the things for the long term. This had to have been like, take your time with this, speak to every Haitian and have that Haitian tell you, okay, this is why I'm, I'm afraid to go back. This is my situation. Now, I knew that some of them are, were going to get deported. I mean, some of these migrants, I knew that they had lived in Mexico for too long. They might be resettled already, and so they couldn't qualify for asylum. I knew that some of them already had asylum, maybe in Brazil. I mean, I, I understand that. And I understand that some of them don't are, are just here for economic reasons, and that's not good enough to come to the United States. But there were a lot of asylum seekers there. And I wanted the Biden administration to take their time with it and give everyone the respect that they deserved and the time to prove their case. That is not what happened, obviously, right? There was like- I mean, it was weird because both sides, both sides were really kind of rushing to save the day, kind of like mm-hmm. stop them from coming or get them out as fast as possible, load the planes. I, I can understand it from the CBPP's perspective. If they're asked to do that, they have to do that. And they need to take their time to ask the questions, to find out what they're asylum cases would be. And I just think that it was, I think it was a failure because they didn't give them that kind of time. Now, I know when we talk about immigration, most everybody within the U.S. instantly thinks of the Mexican border. They think of Mexico. And a lot of times people, it's very frustrating. And a lot of times people don't realize that it's, you know, like you said, there's been this shift in migration from a lot of Central and South American countries. Because people here don't understand that Latinos come from several countries, not just Mexico. What are some of the common misconceptions in regards to immigration, not just at the Mexico-U.S. border, but beyond? Because I feel like people don't realize that there's immigrants that come here from around the world. Like, it's not just the Mexican border. What are some of the, the common misconceptions that you, that you hear or that frustrate you? Just, just that the fact that that immigration is always related to to Latin or Latinx populations, uh, Hispanic populations, Central South Americans, but every migrant from different countries have different cases and they have different situations. There's a lot of refugees from China who are Uyghur refugees who are being persecuted in China and they arrive requesting asylum. My organization right now is representing uh, 68 Afghanistan Fulbright scholars. They came here with uh, student visas to study in the United States for a period of time and um, under the prestigious Fulbright Scholarship Program. And at the end of that program, they had to return to Afghanistan. They arrived over the summer. And when the U.S. withdrew, all of a sudden, they can't meet their their um, their, their obligation to go back. 
And so, I mean, my organization was kind of like trying to communicate with the Fulbright Commission. And this is something we hadn't seen forever and it hadn't ever happened before. And now they have uh, J-2 visas that they can qualify for for their relatives. But the immigration process is very complicated. It's very nuanced. It's this. It's the most complicated area of law next to the tax system. That's what everybody says. But unlike the tax system, the consequences for immigration failure is could, could be life or death. It's not, you know, you owe more taxes. So the, yeah. con- the consequences are much, much higher. Ooh. How can people learn more about fear of return? I know they can go to your website, fearofreturn.org. Mm-hmm. How can people participate in helping in any way, shape, or form? Because I know that there's various ways. Some people, some are monetary, some are volunteering, but what are the various ways that, and where do you need the most help in regards to what people can do and bring their resources to fear of return? Well, we need more registered attorneys with us. Like I said, fear of return has grown to in a different direction than I even anticipated. Originally, we were just going to be here located in, in Tijuana, and we had a network of about a few San Diego attorneys that we could rely on. But now we're getting requests from all over the world and from people in in different parts of the United States, and we've been trying to grow our attorney list there. So if you have any type of, of uh, uh, attorney license, bar license, then go to fearofreturn.org backslash help. Also, if you're bilingual, if you speak any foreign language, we can use you. Again, fearofreturn.org backslash help. Yeah, we're 501. We, we're on a shoestring budget. There's no salaried staff, but we do need to keep the lights on. So uh, fearofreturn.org backslash donate. It's a 501. It's tax deductible. And if you're too far, if, if you don't think you have anything, any kind of skill that you can use, then just donate your time to a nonprofit around your area that does legal services, especially immigrant legal services. Uh, it's not the most glamorous job, but it, it's the most important one. It doesn't matter what language you speak. If you can sit down with somebody and, and help, it, it's really an invaluable service. Pedro, thank you, first of all, for just sharing so much information. I want to make sure I give you the opportunity to share anything that you feel like I didn't ask or that you wanted. I just want to give you the opportunity to have any last words before we give out your social media and before we close out. No, I, honestly, I just thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. You were right. The hour went by as fast as you said it was going to. <laughs> I've never done an interview this long before, but it was really fun, Jessica. So I really appreciate uh, you inviting me to be here. And uh, and I hope your audience gets some information out of it, does some research on their own and tries, tries to help just a little bit. Yes. Things like this are so important. And I think that we, when we think of immigration, like we we're talking about, we think of a particular sort of population, but this affects everybody. This affects a lot of different countries and a lot of different people. And it's very important that we open ourselves up. Like we open our minds, we open our hearts. We really see, we open our eyes as to what's actually happening. And just our immigration system is just so broken. And I appreciate people like you who are really on the ground, boots on the ground, pen to the paper, really just trying to do everything that you can do to help as many people as possible. So thank you so much. I want to make sure we get your social media. It is uh, at Real Pedro Chavez on Instagram and Twitter and at Pedro Chavez on Clubhouse, which is where we met. Yeah, go Clubhouse. (laughs) (laughs) So make sure to go follow. And then again, Make sure to go to fearofreturn.org for more information on the nonprofit. So thank you, Pedro. I appreciate you so, so much. Thank you for all of the wonderful information. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Jessica. Until next time, mi gente. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Wine and Chisme podcast. For more information on today's guest, please see the show notes for links to websites and social media channels. You can check out all things Wine and Chisme on our website, thewineandchismepodcast.com. There, you will find the names of wines I drink each episode, as well as additional information on me, the podcast, and you can even apply to be a guest straight from there. You can also find us on social media, at The Wine and Chisme on Instagram, and at The Wine and Chisme Podcast on Facebook. Remember, if you want to hear more Wine and Chisme, subscribe, rate, and review. Five-star ratings are appreciated and those positive reviews are appreciated even